You're listening to We Can Do This, a podcast by the National Consumers League. We talk through the issues of today with the figures who have paved the way for social and economic reforms and those carrying on the fight for an equitable tomorrow. Leading today's conversation is Sally Greenberg of the National Consumers League. Hi, this is Sally Greenberg. I am Executive Director of the National Consumers League and host of today's We Can Do This podcast for the National Consumers League. So my guest today is Beth Porter. She is Green America's Climate and Recycling Director, as well as the author of Reduce, Reuse, Reimagine, Sorting Out the Recycling System. She is going to answer a lot of our tough questions today and give us some guidance as to what the world looks like if if we were really to have an effective recycling system and how we can get there as consumers. So welcome to you, Beth Porter. Delighted to have you. Let me start by asking, other than the obvious need for advocates of sustainability, what got you interested in this field? Thank you so much for having me on the show, Sally. It's lovely to be here. Um, great question. Taking it back to the beginning. <laughs> I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to really spend a lot of time outside as a kid. I grew up in North Carolina. Um, so spent a lot of time outside playing in the woods and really developed a love of uh, forests and nature throughout childhood that eventually led me to focus my education on environmental studies at the University of North Carolina at Asheville in the mountains. And that time, my education really flourished, and I became passionate about advocacy work and sustainability, um, getting involved on campus, volunteering, and even coming up to D.C., where I now live, uh, to take part in youth activist conferences or lobbying against mountaintop removal, uh, coal removal on Capitol Hill, and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, my education is really ongoing, and um, what started kind of as a love, uh, childhood love of forests has really grown into a a large passion for environmental advocacy that works to to really uproot practices and systems that threaten communities and environmental health. Um, So I've been a campaign director, as you mentioned, at Green America for several years. And I've worked on issues ranging from waste and recycling to clean energy, uh, to working to eliminate climate polluting greenhouse gases in different sectors. So wide range of um, really different systems and and solutions. A lot to be excited about and a lot of work to do. Well, yeah, and that's great. I, I think what you do uh, is really the intersection for us of environmental uh, environmentalism, sustainability, but also uh, a very important consumer issue. And I think consumers are really interested in what, how they can be part of the solution. But it's just confusing, and you read a lot of things that seem contradictory. So um, let's start with some basics, though. Can you define for us what is meant by environmental sustainability? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think this definition can, uh, there's sort of general definitions, of course, uh, that are really widely accepted. I think a main one is meeting the needs of the present uh, without compromising uh, the needs of uh, future generations, their ability to meet their own needs. And, and I think that's really a common definition. Um, but it's, it's, yeah, I think it's a personal journey in many ways. Um, and to me, I think this also means ensuring that all communities are able to meet their needs and really thrive. Um, and that we're operating, you know, as a society in ways that ensure clean air and water for everyone, and that we're using resources in a way that really operates in more of a sustainable and kind of circular process 
uh, rather than the linear methods of extract, use, throw away, repeat, as, as we've uh, seen so often. And um, yeah, for me, sustainability, I just think of it as eliminating those extractive and unjust systems uh, that degrade the environment and pollute you know, public health and disregard public health, but instead really looking to live and build systems that sustain the continuation of life for all communities and ecosystems. That, that's really helpful. And as you know, we did a report last year called Examining Sustainability, Consumer Choice, and Confusion in, in Food and Beverage Packaging. And one of the things that we, uh, one of the conclusions of the report was that we have a problem with plastic. And the, uh, the plastics industry has been very clever in couching various plastic products as heavily recyclable, um, knowing sort of full well that that was not the case. Then we've got, you know, the aluminum industry and the cans and the more um, recyclable uh, products that either do or don't have a lot of direction behind how to how to actually recycle them, but could be could be um, much more focused on that. So what we came away with was plastics are really not terribly recyclable. The can industry uh, and aluminum much more so, but nevertheless, a lot of stuff just ends up in the landfill. So can you give us your perspective on plastic versus aluminum? And then we're going to get to some questions about what consumers can actually do to be part of the solution. Oh, absolutely. Um, yes, excellent reports. I was uh, excited to read it and you all identified some really key solutions. Um, so just uh, my my appreciation for that report. <laughs> it was excellent. Um, but yeah, plastics are, um, I mean, truly a mess, truly. And I think plastics in many ways uh, are kind of a significant burden on the recycling system. Um, so I guess looking at just the larger recycling system and, and how plastics are a burden or how other materials kind of perform better, quote unquote, in the system. Um, you all may know, you know, most communities in the U.S. Uh, with recycling programs now practice what's called single stream or commingled. So all the recyclables go into one bin and the sorting of our recyclables generally takes place at a material recovery facility or a MRF. And so then recyclables are sorted out by material type and then uh, sold to secondary markets to be used in new products, ideally. <laughs> uh, these items are sorted through, you know, combination of waste management professionals, hand sorting them, trying to remove items that can't actually go through the recycling uh, process well. And um, there's also a use of different machines that are designed to separate them out. And so often these recycling programs, uh, the guidelines within them, the ones that we try to follow at home and say, what can I put in the bin and what can't I? Uh, are really designed around what these programs can collect, sort, and sell. And plastics, um, there's a really wide range of plastics out there, but the main plastic items that really have a market that really can be more effectively collected and sold through this current system uh, are plastic bottles, commonly known as the ones and the twos, <laughs> which we'll get to in labeling later. Um, but there's this vast array of other plastics that can't navigate the current system. And that's either due to their composition or shape, uh, or the fact that they just have a dismally low market value. So nobody wants to buy them. Um, so as you mentioned, they end up you know, being landfilled or incinerated. Um, so this is, and this is just, of course, the products that go through waste management. Um, as we have seen uh, time and again, plastic is uh, often mismanaged and pollutes out into the environment, to our waterways, threatening wildlife, breaking down into microplastics over time. And we're still even really learning about all of the effects of 
of plastics in our environment. But um, yeah, there are negative impacts from communities on communities and the environment from production to disposal of plastics. Um, so I think in the past few decades, as plastics has grown to kind of take up more space in our waste stream, the recycling system hasn't really been able to evolve and keep pace with the range of plastic items out there. So manufacturers are kind of flooding the system uh, in a way with whatever kind of plastic packaging or product they'd like to churn out. And there hasn't been a lot of accountability for the end of life of those products. Um, so I want to give great credit to organizations and individuals and communities who are really pushing back against that and calling for that accountability um, and, and looking back to the design stage, you know, because on recycling, we, we really tend to kind of look at the end of life. How do we manage this stuff? Um, but really putting the pressure back on the production side and, and how are we designing products to really flow through the recycling system? Um, and I have to say, I think the plastics industry really has really escaped that accountability for a very long time. We're seeing the effects of that now with um, so much in our waste stream that can't actually be recycled. Um, so I think it's it's great to see, you know, state and local level policies, uh, identifying certain non-recyclable plastic items, uh, pushing for efforts to really require manufacturers to uh, to address the impact of their waste and, and other measures like that. So I guess that's how I would say sort of plastics, I view it in the larger system and how it, it really kind of operates as a bit of a, a burden on the system itself. And so other materials, as you mentioned, that have higher recyclability, have a bit stronger value in the market, like aluminum products, uh, kind of uh, prop up in many ways, uh, the costs associated with, with managing plastics that, that don't have um, a high market value um, for a number of reasons, really. <laughs> That's it's a bit of a complicated issue, but, um, but I, I think a big part of why plastic isn't valued is because those those externalities, the impacts of extracting and disposal of the item isn't baked into sort of the cost of brand new materials like virgin plastics. Uh, so recycled content really um, is sort of on an uneven playing field in the market with uh, virgin material extraction. And I do think there's been a history of the plastics industry kind of working to keep that uneven playing field um, operating. So there's been a lot of focus and you know public efforts, uh, so to speak, on behalf of the plastics industry saying, you know, they want to improve recycling, but it really seems like what they want to do is make collection of recyclables better, um, but not necessarily the actual use of that recycled content to displace the need for that virgin material content. Well, now let me drill down on that. Um, you know, we've just got mounds and mounds of plastic. You know, you go to any trash can anywhere in the U.S. and you see, uh, if you're lucky, if it's not on the ground or been, you know, thrown willy-nilly into the ocean or it's not, you know, washed up on in a stream somewhere, you see just ungodly amounts of, of plastic bottles everywhere. And we all know that, you know, during COVID, people are using them more because they don't want to use drinking fountains. My gym, you know, shut down all their all their drinking fountains. Um, I was just at a, a homeless shelter giving out food and, you know, they used to like have a have a fountain instead now everybody's getting these you know two big plastic bottles of water so um you know the, i think the worry for a lot of people is we're beyond the tipping point and there's no coming back from it w what what would you say about you know where we are now uh in the in in the sort of uh lifespan of of these products that aren't terribly recyclable yeah, I, I think there is so much potential to really make a lot of improvements to change the trajectory of where we've where we're going um, in our materials management and our waste and the use of plastics. So uh, definitely think there's there's 
there's a return <laughs> or not even a return, but just a transition yeah. into something better. Uh, and I, I do think it is because there's been so much um, uh, a rising awareness, I should say, amongst the public about plastic pollution, about these impacts, you know, those those really sobering images of, uh, you know, plastics in the ocean and uh, seeing them, like you just said, kind of overflowing from garbage uh, bins on the sidewalk. People can really identify it and see it as a problem um, and are really starting to, to push. So people will uh, contact companies and businesses on social media and call attention that way and say, you know, I want you to use uh, only recyclable or compostable packaging or things like that. And really there's this pressure that's been mounting in the last few years that I think is, um, is, is very powerful and new. And, and, and that can really, I think is going to change us in a positive trajectory. Um, and there are some legislative uh, movements happening. I tend to work more on sort of the market-based corporate accountability side. Um, but I of course am very pleased and excited to see policy uh, moving forward on the issues that I work on. Uh, one particular example that was introduced uh, last, almost a year ago exactly, actually, is um, the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act. And uh, that was introduced at the federal level. And it's this really um, comprehensive bill that covers a lot of different um, mechanisms that we can use to reduce plastic waste and that we can use to reduce waste overall. And some, some of that is... Um, Extended producer accountability. So really, uh, you know, making sure that producers are paying into building a better recovery system so that these these waste items don't end up in the environment. We don't see that level of pollution. Um, one that I think is really crucial and important kind of touches on what I mentioned earlier with the economic levers um, of having recycled content be as competitive in the market as virgin content is, uh, is, is looking at recycled content minimum requirements for products that currently um, have uh, little to no recycled content in them. And that is, you know, the, a lot of plastic products, frankly. So, um, so I think, I think those areas are really some interesting policy mechanisms that can be used to, um, to push us in a new direction. And I think there's, there's a lot of um, great groups out there working on building up uh, reuse and repair and making sure that we're looking at those first two R's of reduce and reuse um, just as, just as strongly, just as importantly, as we've been looking at recycling for many years. I see that that's a, that that bill is comprehensive. Uh, it's a House bill. Does the Senate have a champion? Is that the Udall bill? It was the Udall bill, yes. And then um, I am not yet certain of who the next champion in the Senate will be. <laughs> I think there's a lot of, um, I think there are some folks who, who I would assume would take it on, but we haven't seen that yet because Senator Udall um, did not run for, for re-election. But you like these bills. Tell us what they would do and in, in a little bit more detail. They go to the manufacturers and insist the manufacturers build in something from it, the inception of the product. They build in some sort of uh, sustainability model. What else do these uh, bills do? Yeah, some of these some of these bills will look at um, elimination of certain items that are non-recyclable. A common bill that's happened at the state level um, in a lot of places is around styrofoam um, and working to eliminate the use of styrofoam and to-go containers and things like that because um, it is it is a plastic product that has been notoriously difficult to manage and there's very there's minimal, <laughs> I, I think minimal is a generous word, uh, demand for, for that material in the markets as well. So really just kind of come back to that demand for these materials to, to close the loop. So in other words, the, the blowback from styrofoam, which, you know, we, we all look askance at uh, styrofoam coffee cups or takeout 
uh, materials that are in styrofoam. And I, you know, I'm not sure what goes on in the rest of the country. I know that I live on the East Coast, and probably some of our companies or, or restaurants are are more sensitive. Uh, to concerns about sustainability, and so they've moved to other products. Um, uh, is, is this something that's really a, a national movement? Have we seen a, a far reduced uh, reliance on styrofoam for to-go and for coffee and things like that? I think it's really at the state level right now. And I think what is exciting potentially about these these bills um, is to really see that national effort, you know, sort of a, a bit of a um, coordinating effort at the national level to really try to drive up sustainable initiatives. Because right now it's been a bit, you know, we could call it kind of a patchwork approach of um, a lot of uh, states. Uh, California is a is a great one. Um, D.C. actually, not officially a state yet. Um, <laughs> um, but we eliminated styrofoam <laughs> many years yeah. ago. And uh, we would have been the first state to do so, I believe, if we had been a state at the time. But all this to say that that I think taking a national level approach can really drive a, a larger system change. And I and from my understanding, the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act really looked to a lot of these state and local bills and these kind of innovative ideas that were happening at the local level to try and inform um, the legislation they developed at the at the national level. So it's a bit of a, you know, kind of learning from what's already working at the state level and, and really seeing how we can scale that up for bigger impact. Tell us overall, is recycling helping or hurting? And tell us why. So I think recycling needs um, many changes to take place in it as a system for the full potential of environmental and social benefits from it to be realized. Um, recycling is helping in the way that it's certainly pulling many materials out of the waste stream for recovery, uh, particularly metal products and paper, uh, which have pretty strong recycling rates. Um, and they, you know, that level of success varies a lot between materials, as we, as we mentioned. Um, but there are aspects of recycling that are functioning, but I wouldn't say that it's thriving as a system up until this point. We've been hovering at a national recycling rate of about, you know, 32 uh, to 34% for the last uh, decade or two. And last year, we actually saw a decrease in our overall recycling rate. So so it's it, it's it's kind of stagnated in many ways. And I think it's helping, but to a very real limit. Um, and I, I think it, you know, like, we need to kind of contend with that for it to help in a much bigger way. But I, the act of recycling, the um, the act of collecting items, breaking them down, using them in new production, that drives down greenhouse gas emissions from the extraction of natural resources. That drives down energy usage at the production level. Um, and of course, it works to keep materials out of landfills and incineration, uh, which all have very positive things for um, for people on the planet, I would say. But one thing so this is a bit of a, I'm sort of cheating because I'm saying both. It's helping and it's hurting. But one one thing I do worry about recycling, um, I guess, quote, hurting isn't so much the act of recycling itself, but it's the way we talk and think about it. So I think recycling is often portrayed as um, a magic bin where we put trash in and then shiny new things, you know, pop out perfectly. And, and, and the, there's a complex system behind those bins, right? So even though recycling has these clear environmental benefits, um, it there's still impacts, you know, like there's still... Uh, impacts of um, collecting these items. There's impacts for the actual recycling process. Um, and I think in many ways, it can kind of tend to overshadow those first two R's of reduce and reuse, which which have far greater environmental benefits. So I think the emphasis on recycling has in some ways maybe distracted us, um, a collective us, of course, from, uh, from having more of that emphasis on reducing waste through the start, through redesigning of products, making less stuff, reusing materials, repairing goods, um, so while recycling is a far better option than burning or burying our waste, 
And I think it's necessary to really collect materials for new manufacturing. Um, I always remind people it's the third R for a reason. It has an impact. And recycling doesn't just, you know, disappear our waste into thin air, nor does it really, um, you know, erase the original impacts from producing the goods in the first place. Uh, so I urge, you know, for recycling strategies to really operate in service to those larger goals of overall waste reduction. Uh, so we want to make reduce and reuse primary pillars in managing materials sustainably and not kind of the add-ons uh, that I think maybe recycling and in having such a large emphasis on recycling has has resulted in. But I, I do think that's changing. And I think I think people are really seeing the benefits of um, overall reduction and exploring sort of creative ideas for reusable packaging and package free and just all of these things in a way that um, that's opening up a lot of uh, new ideas. So we should continue as consumers to uh, to recycle because it does remove things from this from the waste stream, but uh, much better to uh, reduce our consumption, uh, which means if you're trying to be a good consumer and sustainable, the, you um, maybe fill your water bottle up. Um, I'm just thinking about I haven't taken a plastic bag from a store in my, maybe four years even though, you know, I'm always offered one. And I, and I think to myself, well, it's, it's a little thing. And, but I've, I, I said, I've said to friends, you know, I probably have not taken probably 2000 plastic bags in that period of time. So that's something, but I'm just thinking the little things like, so that's reduce in terms of reuse, you know, most conscientious consumers and, you know, they're, I don't know what, what, what the percentage of conscientious consumers who were really focused and concerned about the environment is. Do you have a ballpark number? I think it depends on the issue. Maybe 75% of Americans surveyed think recycling is important. You know, they believe that it matters, but there's also a hefty amount of those folks who don't quite understand how it works or are confused by the labeling and things like that. So the values uh, and the thinking of recycling, thinking of waste reduction as a priority is generally pretty high uh, amongst amongst individuals in the U.S., but it's like, how do we do this? So what are some things that people do recycle, but they shouldn't or things that simply aren't recycled properly? Uh, so this is my time to always encourage people to look up their local recycling guidelines. Uh, and that helps to, you know, avoid contaminating our bins at home, of course. Um, and there sometimes cities or counties might have their own search engine set up. Uh, I know D.C. where I live, you can go to Zero Waste D.C. and then, you know, plug in whatever item you're looking to recycle and it will tell you how you can dispose of it in the district. Um, a general resource is Earth 911. And that's a really great resource where you type in, you know, the item you're trying to recycle and the zip code. And it will advise you on the best thing. Yeah, and that includes sometimes unique items. So stuff that shouldn't go in the bin, but can be recycled through another channel, um, like batteries, you know, or something like that, uh, that, that has a, just a different channel for recycling. So that's a great resource. But I think, oh man, things that people often recycle but shouldn't. One big example I have to say is the, the plastic bag. Um, so tanglers which includes plastic bags or maybe garden hoses or holiday lights. These, these items that sort of act as tanglers go through the recycling, you know, they get collected in our curbside bins, they get taken to a sorting facility and then can really get stuck in the machinery at sorting facilities, which actually causes the entire sorting facility, this massive production to, to halt. And then workers actually have to climb into the machines and manually cut out tangled up plastic bags and things like that. So so I always advise people to, to you know, consider the, <laughs> the folks on the other side of the bin and, and what they're having to contend with and try to keep the tanglers out of, out of the bin. So that's, um, 
that's one. And I, I think another problem is just putting stuff in the bin that's not emptied out. Um, so empty and dry is kind of a good rule of thumb. Uh, for example, like an orange juice bottle that's not emptied out, stuff like that. Sometimes recyclers have told me they'll find half full ketchup bottles, you know, and it decreases the um, kind of the, the market quality and value of the, the the container that it's in. But it also could, in a single stream system, risk like getting some ketchup or like saturating, you know, cardboard or something that's that's a more porous item. So, um, so yeah, just trying to empty out items uh, and keep out the tanglers is a great starting point. But of course, always look up your local guidelines because uh, recycling really does vary uh, by community. What what happens to a? I'm I'm uh, I've been riding down the block in my neighborhood and I see two mattresses that have been out like for months. People put out what happens to a mattress? Yeah, so mattresses, from my understanding, there is a lot of potential. Um, uh, there's wood in a mattress, sometimes you know metals in a mattress, and I think there there are different materials that can be used uh, from it. And I know that the, I believe it's the mattress, some sort of mattress council. It's a name like <laughs> like mattress recycling council or something to that effect has really tried to grow awareness about how much potential there is in mattresses. I unfortunately can't speak to the detail of exactly, you know, what materials are in there, but it's 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 sort of thinking about those items that we um, we have in our homes that are really just like a, a kind of a complex mix of, of different materials. And um, there can be markets for, for all of those. Oh, that's, uh, that's goodness. So I'll call and make sure that they get hauled away. That makes me feel a lot better. But um, so uh, um, one day I was thinking about razors because razors are scary stuff. You don't want to just throw them in the trash, right? Um, Paracycle is, is, a, is a company that um, they collect things that are hard to recycle, basically. So like razors might be one, um, you know, contact lens cases, guitar strings, candy wrappers, just all sorts of stuff that that doesn't go into our curbside bin. Um, Paracycle is a company that really uh, tries to kind of operate at a, at a smaller scale um, than our typical packaging would would operate in for, through a larger recycling system and really try to identify buyers for some of these products um, that don't really happen as much at the, on the larger market level. So Terracycle, they do offer, um, I think, a great benefit in they're trying to provide that service and capture these materials for recycling or repurposing or, you know, different things based on uh, what material it is. But I think it does sort of like get to that point where where we're looking back at the production side and we're looking back at how we're producing items and how our recycling system itself is is able to modernize and the infrastructure challenges there. And so I think TerraCycle and these sort of like drop-off programs, we could say, or like kind of special mail-in programs are really great and that they're really just trying to address a problem. They're trying to address a symptom of maybe a larger systemic issue. So I think I think there's a lot of lot of benefit to them, definitely. And they're run by industry players, as I understand it, like some of the big three or four uh, industry players that make household products have gotten together. Uh, and I'm very glad to hear that you, uh, you think they're, they're important and they're doing uh, a good job and play an important role in the whole, uh, uh, the, the, the conception of how we improve our, our, uh, our sustainability. So, um, for consumers though, uh, is this, are they a viable uh, option for the average consumer to use a, a TerraCycle? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think TerraCycle, depending on what you're looking for, you could find on their website, they generally have maps. Um, so it might be 
uh, for example, contact lenses, because I wear contact lenses, so I'll go with that. Um, the the uh, packaging that those lenses come in, uh, TerraCycle has a partnership with um, a contact lens company that helps uh, fund this process, basically. So it's sort of like a special own little recycling system that it's that's carved out. And you can go on the map and look and enter in your zip code and see, okay, well, what's, you know, who's collecting them near me? Oh, maybe your, you know, ophthalmologist is collecting them. Uh, maybe there's a store nearby. So so there are opportunities for drop-off that are sometimes, you know, free. But I, I do want to emphasize that the, the boxes themselves, if you decide you want to collect tooth you know, paste tubes or something through one of the TerraCycle boxes, um, those those do come at a cost. You know, people would have to pay for the box and then, um, you know, covers the shipment to send it back. But that there there is that sort of um, barrier to, to participate in some of these processes. Um, so I, I think, you know, that's, I think that's a, um, a challenge for, for kind of operating in this way. But again, I think things like TerraCycle are sort of filling a need that maybe speaks to a larger issue of looking at um, that design stage. How are we designing these things? How are we modernizing our recycling collection? Um, and what are our markets doing? How are we incentivizing more demand for recycled materials um, to really make sure that we're closing that loop uh, in the broader sense? If you were appointed uh, czar of sustainability, Beth, what are some of the moves you'd make to improve the sustainability practices in America? And I think you should be, you should be, Appointed to now that we are, we have czars in the White House, many czars. Why not sustainability, right? Yeah, why not? Yeah. Well, and I think I um, again my involvement with uh, with the policy side of things is is a little limited, but I have been um, I, I've been uh, optimistic, I will say, about what I've seen in just the last couple of weeks with with the new announcements from the Biden Harris administration. The really the priority of climate specifically, and there's climate czars and, and committees and really, you know, spreading that throughout the government rather than keeping it in one agency or one program, really identifying that um, addressing the climate crisis is a whole whole uh, larger issue to even talk about. But it, it requires so much thinking at all of these different levels because it affects everything. Um, so I guess if I were appointed czar of sustainability, there would be a, a mountain of things I would love to do. <laughs> I think I would have to say because of, you know, the work I do on climate and um, greenhouse gas emissions, I think any anything would want we'd want to identify how it can serve the fight um, on the climate crisis and to really work to reduce emissions and to really try to identify practices that um, that have that balance between cutting down climate polluting emissions and also promoting circularity and waste reduction. And there's just a lot of, um, I guess, fertile ground in that in that area uh, to really satisfy both of those goals. So everything would be in service of, of um, addressing the climate crisis. But I think looking at sustainability, I'd really look at um, some of those system level changes we were talking about, trying to work on standardization of labeling, you know, at that level even, just so people uh, can understand what, what we need to do, uh, really trying to drive up demand for recycled materials to make sure we're not just uh, collecting them, but we're actually using them. Um, and really just try to build up those uh, second-hand markets and really uh, emphasize repair. A lot of the things we've talked about, I think, would be, would be um, very beneficial at the national level and to see that, that grow, to kind of become the norm rather than the exception and to really make sustainability the default uh, rather than this um, you know, sort of unique or niche 
um, market or action like this, that we are operating within systems uh, that really just encourage us to to do that specifically as, as the default. So there's a lot that I think we can do for, for sustainability, but I have full faith in what I've seen so far coming out of the new administration. Yeah, that's, it. that's encouraging. But I think one of the things we pointed out in our report is there's a lot of confusing information, as you've said, and not really clear direction to consumers. So even though we have that Mobius uh, loop, that is brilliant. Uh, it really um, is is in in, pra- in practical terms is rather meaningless. Um, I'm looking at a bottle that is from Florida, and it's called Z- Z- Zephyr Hills. And the bottle is water, and it says "I'm not trash" on it. And so it has a little QR code, and you go to the QR code and scan it. But what's interesting is it says "I'm not trash." It says um, "made better." Lots of and when you go to that QR code, it's not really clear what they want you to do with the bottle. Um, so, and, and I'm just, I, I just, I'm pointing that out because I think there's so much confusion and consumers who want to do the right thing are not really given good guidelines for doing it. So what's your best advice? Like you've given us some tips about, you know, call, you can call um, Earth 911 uh, and put in, uh, uh, you know, whatever it is that you might be interested in recycling. I mean, just even oil. Let's say you fry up a bunch of chicken or something, and you have leftover oil. What do you do with that? Do you? I, I was visiting a friend in Cleveland, and I called up uh, Cleveland Heights uh, municipality, and they said, "Put it out with your recycling. We'll pick it up." Um, but Washington D.C. doesn't have that option. Yeah, it, it definitely depends on where you are, and I think. Um, that there might be a different market for restaurants, for example, with uh, disposing of cooking oil in New York. That's really common um, that they are uh, directed to put out their cooking oil in a specific container, I believe, so that it will be uh, reused in a in a new way. But I, I think that the the note you made about labeling is really important because it is, you know, one of the classic examples of the three arrows, the Mobius loop is, is that they are used on plastic products like bottles, you know, everything with that small number in the three arrows. And um, those numbers are supposed to be an identification signal to show what kind of plastic resin was used in a product, of course, but like placing it within the recycling symbol is so confusing and very, I would argue, misleading at this point, because we know that it causes this confusion. So whatever the intention was when when that uh, was decided to be used as a as a resin identification symbol, now we know what the impact of it is, and it's time to try and change that um, because it confuses people to think they can put anything in the in the recycling bin and it will be recycled, and that doesn't look at the larger picture of the market demand or actual you know recycling capabilities that we currently have, and and so I think I think uh, clearer labeling is important, but transparent and honest labeling. Um, is is so important that um, yeah that I think we we definitely need to to address that. There is a label called the How to Recycle label with the number two. Uh, so some folks may have seen that popping up on items in the store, and that provides I think a bit more context where it it, it tries to look at what's uh, widely recyclable or what's um, not widely recyclable. In, in different communities and and identify like what it's talking about. So on a plastic bottle, for example, it'd be widely recyclable. Most recycling programs take plastic bottles um, and it would advise you to make sure it's emptied out, replace the lid and put it in the bin. So it sort of tells yeah. you not just like if it's recyclable or not, yes or no, but also um, 
what you might need to do to, to, you know, before you put it in the bin to really help out with that process. So I think, I think things like that are, are helpful cues, um, maybe more so than a QR code that doesn't <laughs> tell you what to do. Right. And- well, actually, I stand corrected. So what they do, what they did at the beginning, and I'm just using this as an example. At the beginning, they tell about how wonderful their water is and where it's from. But very at the bottom, it says, designed for recycling. Our bottles are designed to be 100% recyclable when empty. Remember to put the cap on. We use number one pet plastic, which can be recycled over and over and over again. Is that true? I, I, I definitely would challenge the notion of infinite recyclability for plastics. So this is something that has been coming up and we're going to see it more, I would say, with the rise of something that's called um, chemical recycling, which um, I'm not a chemist, so I can't speak at length to it. But it is basically right now what we do is mechanical recycling. So it's really sort of like breaking down materials into their raw state through using a mechanical process. But this is looking at like more of a I want to say just like molecular level, even it's really like changing the composition of a material back to its original state. But there are a lot of concerns around chemical recycling of plastics because of it's, it's far more energy intensive than our current recycling processes, which is of course a concern. You don't want to drive up another very real and important environmental impact there. Um, And also just the concern that uh, the, the end product the end amount of plastic that you get is just far lower than we would through a mechanical recycling process because um, of what gets essentially kind of like burned during the process of chemical recycling. So the chemical recycling is is something that I think plastics industry folks are really, um, many might be really hopeful about. Um, but that would be when we see a plastic item that says it's infinitely recyclable, I would bet almost anything that they're talking about chemical recycling, which is very new. It's not fully understood, not fully developed. Um, and I don't think we have a clear sense of all the real impacts and, and risks of this as a, as a process. Um, but plastics in general really degrades during the recycling process. So you might get, you know, one or two uses out of, um, in a, you know, a, a bit of plastic before it's not usable anymore, or you need to bring in what's called a modifier of, you know, kind of virgin plastic to make it stronger enough for, um, to be used in a new product. Paper is a bit different. So paper fibers are really strong. That's like a magazine. Uh, weaker paper fibers are like tissue paper. So it's, you know, the paper grades are sort of in this cascading process where you can use paper fibers for different products uh, that require different strength levels. Well, can I recycle my magazines then? Does it make sense to throw them in the recycling bin, even if they're color? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. That's really good to know. So um, let me kind of, you know, we're coming to the end of our hour. It's gone really, really fast. I know. You've asked some great questions. A, 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 a lot of fun to talk to you and so important. But we really want to be laser focused on consumer information that's accurate and helpful. Um, so you, I think you started out by saying, Consumers have really changed the uh, the, the uh, dynamic by using social media to write to companies and say, you know, why uh, maybe the Coke or Pepsi or uh, you know you, you, your your product has m- much too much uh, wrapping on it and and packaging on it and you know for something so uh, uh, small I've got you know I've got to go through many many layers that's wasteful so one of the tips would be to use social media uh, and um, I I, uh, I that Twitter or Instagram or Reddit or what have you Facebook 
to go onto the sites of companies where you, you have concerns as a consumer, sort of uh, tweet at them or write that you're concerned about this. You've seen that make a difference. Yes. Yep, absolutely. And another thing I would suggest is, um, you know, maybe uh, just searching on the internet for a company name you might be curious about and, um, you know, sustainability or uh, campaigns or petitions or something. And then you would see if uh, maybe an organization um, has is actually working on a particular issue. So you can contact them on social media and then also, you know, signing a petition really uh, using kind of a collective um, voice, <laughs> so to speak, through through petitions and online actions yeah. to really urge a company. And that, that I, it really does um, bring attention from a company perspective, in my experience, in, in the campaigns that I've worked on. Uh, those, those petitions can really make the difference between an organization going to speak to a company as an organization and then going with thousands of individual consumers saying, we want something better. We want something better for the planet. We want something better for uh, public health. You know, whatever the issue is, um, and really, you know, pushing that pressure point in a, in a very um, collective way. So I think that's really powerful. Um, you know, folks will write directly to companies through email, whatever makes, uh, whatever works for them. Because I, I talk to people who are like, I'm not on social media, which is totally fine. <laughs> but there's usually a 1-800 number on a lot of products. We, we really want there always to be a 1-800 number on products. I think that's a sign that they're actually open to hearing back, assuming somebody's answering the phone. Um, in, in, in terms of incentivizing um, sustainability from the beginning, uh, San Francisco banned plastic bottles, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. DC has a we have um, a bag tax uh, that has reduced massively, from my understanding, the number of plastic bags people use. Yeah, it does help. It does help. I think I and I haven't seen hard numbers on this, but I do know that there's been kind of a, a bit of a um, pushback. I think there was a lot of pushback at the start of the pandemic, A, because we, weren't, we, we didn't know we weren't sure exactly how this virus transmitted. We wanted to be safe. And so there was a push to use single use plastic bags and sort of like um, uh pushback against some of those, um, those bans. Um, and then the industry really has done a lot of work to really try to keep that in place. They want to see more single-use plastic products in demand, even though we've seen a lot of um, evidence. We've seen uh, folks from all around the world, different scientists say reusables are fine as long as they've been washed, like it's okay. Um, but still, that, that continues to be, be a challenge. So, And do you like um, bottle deposits for reducing waste? Yeah, I think... Um, you know, the results of bottle deposits, I believe, speak for themselves. I think they 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 really do drive up recycling rates. And they really, um, from what I've seen, have been shown to reduce contamination within the system, particularly around like glass and things like that. So I, I think there's a lot of potential with, with bottle deposits. Right now, I know there's just a few states that have them. Um, I think there's interest uh, from a few folks on in Congress to really try to see if we can get a national container deposit system passed, um, whatever that might look like, you know, I think, I think it could be really um, beneficial. Well, we'd be interested in, in, in cer certainly working on that. So I, um, uh, I'm sure we missed a few items. And one thing I want to make sure people know is that we do have federal legislation right, right now, unfortunately, it's only Democrats, um, break free from the plastic pollution act. Um, before we go, just tell us about that, that divide. Is this a, is this a, like a, a, a blue issue uh, is this a bipartisan issue? If it's not bipartisan, uh, why isn't it? And what can we do about that? You know, what's interesting is I've, I've found in my research and work that recycling tends to be pretty bipartisan. Um, 
and it is it is an area where there's a lot of overlap or recycling or waste reduction, you know, pollution. There there is that, but it's really the approach of how do we go about fixing it. Um, there are some legislation there's some legislation that's been introduced that really focuses um, that's got a lot of industry support, uh, but that environmental groups, uh, including myself, would say don't don't go far enough. Don't look uh, at the larger system. Don't really identify sort of like uh, the roots of the problem, so to speak, in the way that a bill like Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act does. Um, but a bill like that would require a lot of change on the part of industry. It would be um, it would be pretty sweeping change, I would say. And so there's a lot of hesitation, from my understanding, uh, from from folks on the industry side. So so I think, and and that tends to be, um, I guess, more Democrats tend to maybe focus on the advocacy and the environmental side, based on what we're seeing and in the way that you know kind of support is divided up on this bill. There is one bill that I've seen wide support for uh, called the Recycle Act. And that really focuses on education and providing financial support uh, to states and municipalities for better, uh, more comprehensive recycling education and working to reduce contamination. And I think that is a particular area where it seems like most everyone <laughs> tends to agree, including myself, that that, that is really important. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about this. If consumers want more information from your organization, they want tips. I know you've written this great book. Is there anything that we should be telling consumers that we haven't discussed that might give them better sense and guidance about how to be more sustainable in their own daily lives? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I, I did um, work to really try to include ideas for the three R's <laughs> in the book. But beyond that, looking at the larger environmental movement, GreenAmerica.org, the organization I work for, we work on a lot of different issues, um, climate, food, labor issues. Uh, so if folks want to go to our website, they can learn a lot more about ways to get involved with our different campaigns. There's a ton of uh, resources for how to, you know, kind of green your home, your community uh, and beyond. And so I would really recommend folks uh, checking that out and working to reduce buying from our houses, so to speak, using what we already have. But when we do buy something new, trying to support small green businesses, really looking to support businesses that prioritize being environmentally and socially responsible. We have a lot of great information on our website as well about uh, some of those businesses all across the country in different areas that, that folks can support. So a lot of great information on the site. And I hope, I hope everyone will go check it out and reach out to us with more questions. <laughs> Thank you, Beth Porter, the author of Reduce, Reuse, Reimagine, Sorting Out the Recycling System, for spending the time with us. And we will use all of your wonderful suggestions. Thanks for listening to We Can Do This, a production of the National Consumers League. We Can Do This is a member of the District Productive. If you liked what you heard, make sure to subscribe on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred podcast app. And hey, tell your friends about us. We love feedback, so give us a rating or review. You can also talk to us through the National Consumers League's Facebook page or on Twitter at NCL underscore tweets. That's NCL underscore tweets. Still can't get enough? Visit nclnet.org. That's N-C-L-N-E-T dot O-R-G to learn about our rich history in fighting for consumers and workers' rights our current leadership, our education and advocacy programs, and to discover ways for you to make a difference in the world. Remember, we can do this.